Happy Easter. My name is Tommy Allen, and I'm the senior pastor of New Hope Presbyterian Church in Kent, Washington. And you were probably expecting me to start with, He is risen. We're going to do that in a minute. Most people, a lot of people watching this, actually, this live stream right now aren't familiar with the Christian tradition. So here's how it's going to work. I'm going to read a passage from Psalm 22 to sort of open our worship. And when I'm finished, I'm going to say, He is risen. And from your home, you need to shout, He is risen indeed. You're thinking, I'm not going to say that from my home. It'll feel stupid. I'm by myself. All I have to say to that is unless you're sitting in your living room preaching to nobody, you need to do it. So from Psalm 22, if you remember on Monday, Thursday, I told you it ends with victory. So I say, hear the word of God. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to a generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Thank you, too. Well, again, welcome. We don't do a full worship service here because there's no way to really pull off a full worship service online, but we're glad you're here for Easter. You know, earlier this week, one of my best friends, who's also a preacher, uh, sent out a tweet and he said, this week I'm preaching about John 20, because during this whole quarantine time, I really feel like this is a time of weeping. And I tweeted back and said, I'm preaching from Luke 24, verses 30, 13 to 35, because I actually need some levity. In other words, the passage we're going to look at today is an Easter passage. It's a resurrection appearance of Jesus. But in my opinion, it's one of the funniest passages in the whole Bible. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to, we're just going to walk through that. And at the end, we will um, do a profession of faith as we have been doing. So today's uh, passage is uh, Luke chapter 13, I mean, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a little bit long, but... Right, we're all in quarantine. What else do you have to do but listen? So I say to you, hear the word of God. It says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and be crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were, with the, they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find the body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of us who were with them went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and O oh, slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at a table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose at the same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he had made known to them in the breaking of bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray now that you would come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that those with mute tongues would uh, sing your praise. I pray that your spirit would come and just make us alive, as, as alive as Jesus is and was at his resurrection. I pray for myself that you be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. So I want you to imagine a scenario right now that you are at, um, you've gone to the grocery store, Fred Meyer, if you're on the East Coast, maybe you went to a Publix and people are wearing masks and everything, you are, and you walk out of the grocery store and someone comes up to you and says, hey, why, why is everyone wearing masks right now? And why aren't all these kids in school? What would you think of that person if they said that to you? Honestly, you, I, I would think you're crazy. Like, how, how do you not know what's going on. In, in fact, that actually could happen. I was reading this week, I've never seen the television show Big Brother, but Big Brother, apparently it's like sort of Survivor Luxury Edition, where they put everyone in sort of this, this house together and they are constantly filming everything, but they don't know what's happening on the outside world. Well, Germany, Big Brother Germany apparently just decided to let people know that there was a major pandemic going on. And Big Brother Brazil decided they're not going to. So all of these people that are participating in this television show are going to get out and be like, where is everyone? They're going to think the rapture happened, even though rapture is not going to happen. That's another sermon altogether. But you get my point. You would think people were crazy. That's what today's text is about. At least that's, that's how it sets up. In that you have these, this, all these events have happened in Jerusalem, right? From, from Good Friday through Sunday, Jesus, this, this famous prophet, this famous Jewish rabbi, was crucified by the Romans, and it was nasty, and everyone knew about it, and the sky grew dark, and the, the, the veil in the temple tore, people are popping out of graves, all of these things, and these two individuals are walking from Jerusalem back home, and that's all, they're talking about that, and someone comes up to them and says, hey, what, what are you guys talking about? What's going on here? They think He's crazy. Little do they know. We're going to look at four things today. We're going to look at first a ridiculous question, right? They, they think the question Jesus asks is ridiculous. We're going to look at a gloomy answer. Then we're going to see a shocking revelation. And finally, we're going to see an excited report. And at each stage, there's sort of some, some humor that happens here. And if you remember, the, the, uh, Luke, the writer of this gospel, he was really into recording accurate history. So even as we begin and we look at, at the first thing, this ridiculous question at verse 13, 
Notice it says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So what day is he talking about? Well, the day he's talking about is, is Easter. It's the day, and he's referring to the verses that have come just prior to this, where women have gone to the tomb of Jesus, and they've found it empty. And some angels have said, he has risen, just as he said, and the women run back, and they tell everybody, and no one believes them. Simple as that. And so what's interesting is Luke, because Luke cares about what actually happened, the first people to find the, the empty tomb are actually women. Now, in, in Jewish society, the testimony of women uh, didn't count. They weren't allowed to testify. So if Luke wanted to actually lie about this, if he wanted to make it like really seem legit, he would have sent some men there, some really important men who would actually have come back and given a very important testimony. That doesn't happen. The women go, people don't believe him. And he says that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. Now, two of them, we are given the name of one of them. His name is Cleopas. Just for the, for the sake of this text, I'm going to call the other one Eugene. In fact, I'm going to call Cleopas Claude because it's shorter. So we got Claude and Eugene are walking from uh, Jerusalem all the way back to Emmaus home. Now, what is so remarkable about Emmaus is nothing. Again, if, if Luke wanted to make this story legitimate, he would have said that, that we had two very important men from the Decapolis. They had come and they had seen it and now they're going back. You have these two nobodies, one of them we don't even know his name, and they're going to a place that no one cares about, that, that, that very few people even know about, this place called Emmaus. And so that in some sense, and not in some sense, in actuality, lends credibility to this testimony here. Luke isn't making things up, he's just telling the story, and I think the men have probably recounted to, to Luke this story, as you'll see later. But he says, uh, on that very day, uh, two of the men were, were walking toward Emmaus in verse 14, and they were talking to each other about all the things that had happened. And the language there is they were sort of like discussing it sort of vigorously. They're going back and saying, can you believe that? Can you believe that? Or they were sharing theories, right? One of them maybe watches Fox News and one of them watches CNN and they're, they're arguing about which, which news is actually correct. And in the midst of all that, um, Jesus shows up and engages them. And it says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. See, part of the humor of this whole story is that we, the audience, know what's going on. We know that Jesus is, is the person approaching them, and they don't. So Jesus approaches them, and it says, verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And in verse 17, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And I love the next verse, and they stood there looking sad. So imagine they're animated, they're arguing, they're discussing, and then this fool comes up and says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they sort of give the, the face, it, the language there is not just that they were sad, it's that it's it, they stopped in their place and sort of did one of these. Seriously, seriously, you have no idea. And that's basically what Claude says to him. Notice in verse 18, it says, then one of them named Cleopas answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? In other words, he literally <laughs> looks at this guy and says, where have you been for the past three days? Under a rock? Where have you been? Like if you, you would have had to have been in the grave to have missed everything that has happened. 
And Jesus, I imagine, I, I wish I could have been there because I bet you he had a smile on his face and he said, what things? And then Cleopas gives his gloomy answer to Jesus' question, what things? Gloomy answer. In verse 19b, it says, And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and, be, and crucified him. Verse 21, We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and all this... And besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us, and they were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said. But him they did not see. So what you have in verses 19 and 20, basically is what I'm going to call the Gospel of Cleopas. Now, what is the Gospel of Cleopas? The, the Gospel of Cleopas is one is that this guy, Jesus, came and, of Nazareth, and he was a prophet, and he was mighty in word and before, uh, deed before God. And the chief priests came, and the rulers delivered him up, and they condemned him to death, and they crucified him. That's the Gospel according to Cleopas. Now, if you're a Christian, you're saying, well, that sounds pretty familiar. Here's the problem with the gospel according to Cleopas. The gospel according to Cleopas is hopeless. And the reason the gospel according to Cleopas is hopeless is because Cleop the gospel according to Cleopas has no resurrection. You see, a gospel without a resurrection is a hopeless gospel. Did you notice what he said? He tells all the things that have happened, right? That, that Jesus was this great prophet. He did all of these things. And then the chief priests and the rulers crucified him. And then Cleopas, that for Cleopas, that's the end. He said, we had hoped that he'd been the redeemer of Israel. But apparently he, he's not. Because their gospel has no resurrection. There is no hope in it. And notice even he says when the women said that the tomb was empty, they said the tomb was empty. So some of us actually went and saw the tomb and they saw the empty tomb. And even that wasn't enough. They said, we saw the tomb, but we didn't see him. It's over, I guess. Right. See, so basically the, the Cleopas, Claude and, and Eugene, they, they are on the verge of completely giving up their faith because Jesus didn't meet their expectations. Um, let me ask you something. How many of you right now sitting here watching um, have given up your faith or, or, or you, you've struggled with your faith because Jesus hasn't met your expectations? Maybe someone you love passed away. Maybe you didn't uh, have the career you thought you were going to have. Maybe you thought you would be married and you're not. Maybe, maybe you thought you got married and you didn't think you would ever be divorced and, and you thought this isn't the way life wanted to be. Jesus hasn't met my expectations, and so therefore, I'm not going to believe anymore. That's sort of what they're on the verge of. Most people I know don't disbelieve in God. They're disappointed because he didn't meet their expectations. And one of the things you have to, to remember is this, is that all of us make plans, and we should make plans, but God has plans too. And this crucifixion of Jesus was part of the plan. You see, one of the things um, we see is at the crucifixion, and we see it in our lives as well. We'll see it, I promise you, at the end of all this uh, coronavirus stuff, 
is that the, at, the, at the crucifixion, all of the disciples of Jesus thought, he is doing, this is the worst thing that has ever happened in my life. And yet, in the context of the worst thing, from their perspective, Gog was doing the best thing. From their perspective, the worst thing was that their, their friend and their priest and their rabbi and their teacher would die. And yet, from God's perspective, it was the best thing that he would die so that he could be raised again, so that you and I could have our sins forgiven and we also might be raised again. You see, the, the answer of Cleopas is gloomy because he has no hope, and he has no hope because there is no resurrection. That's one of the reasons Easter is so important. And we move from that. You see, they're, they're basically, they're about to receive, they, they don't know it, this sort of shocking revelation. Right? Notice what happens next, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now this is, is a great passage because basically the first thing Jesus does is he says, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. When he says, oh, foolish ones, he's not saying like, hey, you morons. <laughs> he's not criticizing them. He's basically saying, you guys are like slow, right? If it was, if it was, if, if it was, uh, he's sort of saying, he's not even saying you guys are dumber than a bag of hammers. He is just saying, you guys are missing the big picture here. You're missing a, an important point here. The first thing they're missing is he reminds them, verse 26, he says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things before he entered into his glory? In, in other words, he's referring back to what Cleopas has just said, that, that he would be crucified and suffer. Was that not necessary? Jesus is asking. And, so, and then he shows them. He takes, I guess, he, you know, he, whether it's from his mind or somewhere, he shows them in the, in the whole Bible, which to them would have been the Old Testament, from Moses and all the prophets through all the scriptures, all the things concerning himself. Right? If you've been here, as we've talked about the Sermon on the Mount, that one sermon I did a few weeks ago was the fact that the way Jesus reads the Bible is that the whole Bible, all the way from Genesis to Revelation, is about him. And if you're reading the Bible and you're trying to find, just pick and choose sort of moral principles for life, you're ultimately going to be disappointed. But if you read it with an eye to see what does Genesis have to say about Jesus or what does Exodus have to say about Jesus, what you know, Leviticus have to say about Jesus, that's going to change the way you read the Bible. And so we don't know exactly what he taught them or which passages he looked at, if he looked at all of them. And I thought I would just pick a few and, and just sort of like, you know, think about this. So imagine he opens, he's like sort of, guys, open your Bible to Genesis 3.15. Remember in Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. And by the time we get to chapter three, Adam and Eve have been told, here's the thing. You have one thing. You have one job right now. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And we know the story. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God came to the garden in the spirit of judgment. And the very first thing he says before he uh, gives any discipline or any punishment is he makes a promise. And he makes a promise to the serpent. And the promise he makes to the serpent is this. Let me read it to you. Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
In other words, when Adam and Eve uh, sinned in the garden, everything before that was this state called shalom, right? And the word shalom means the way things are supposed to be. And once they, they violated that, things were no longer the way they were supposed to be. And God immediately steps in and says to Adam and Eve, it, it, one of the things you guys need to know is that the seed, you, one of your children, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. He will destroy the work of Satan. And in the process, he will be wounded. He will suffer. And imagine Jesus like telling these guys that and saying, basically, that's me right there. That's the Christ, the Christ, the, the one that was promised all the way back in Genesis. He's the one who came now. And in the process of crushing the head of Satan, he was himself wounded. Remember, the apostle Paul calls uh, Jesus the, the last Adam, right? The first Adam came and screwed everything up. The last Adam came and began to fix everything. And when he rose from the dead, the, the violation that Adam brought into creation, he begins to undo slowly. So that's just Genesis. Imagine then he starts talking about um, Exodus and he says, hey guys, you, you remember the story about the Passover lamb when Israel was enslaved to, to Egypt and how God sent plagues upon them in the last plague. He said, you need to take a lamb without blemish and put the blood over the door of your house. And whoever takes refuge in the blood of the lamb will be saved from judgment. I'm the lamb. I'm the guy. Remember when John the Baptist came and he sees Jesus for the first time and Jesus is approaching. What does John the Baptist say about Jesus? He doesn't say, hey, cuz, what's up? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And not only was it the Lamb, but the priests, guys, all the priests that you see in the Old Testament, they all point to me, every one of them. Let me read you what Hebrews says about the Old Testament priesthood. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, it says, And every priest stands daily at his sacrifice, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool at his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In other words, in the Old Testament, priests had to go in and sacrifice over and over and over and over. And because of the sacrifice of the spotless Lamb of God by God's perfect priest, the sacrifice one time has been accomplished. And for those who would trust in Jesus, your sins will never ever be held against you. But wait, there's more. Imagine him getting to David and saying, hey, you remember David when it, he, he wanted to build God a temple? And God came to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and said, David, no, 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 no. You're a man of bloodshed. You are not going to build a house for me. I am going to build a house for you. That one of your sons will sit upon my throne forever. Guess who that guy is? Right? It's Jesus. Oh, by the way, and speaking of the temple, Jesus would say, I'm the temple too. Right? The whole purpose of the temple was the place where God and man could meet together. And in the person and work of Jesus, what you have is God and man together. And because of the work of Jesus, but also because of who he is, Jesus can have one hand on us and one hand on God at the same time. He is the temple. And finally, the, the, remember he said the prophets, probably the prophet that he's referring to most here when he talks about suffering is Isaiah chapter 53. Imagine him reading this to these men, or maybe he spoke it to them from memory, but Isaiah 53 
I know I just licked my finger. Don't write me a note. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, with no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Now, by the way, this Isaiah is talking about Messiah who would come. And he says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we are like sheep gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Cleopas and Eugene were looking for this nationalistic savior who would come and redeem Israel. And instead, what they got was this cosmic savior who was going to redeem all humanity and all of the world. And he would do it by being crushed. And were he not crushed, you see, the, the, imagine them wondering like, wow, okay, that, that's interesting. And, and if Jesus had revealed himself right then, he would have said, guys, that's me. And the whole point of the gospel is, is me for you, my life for your life. And, and obviously he's doing a good job. Obviously they like him because they actually ask him to stay. Notice in verse 28, it says, so they drew near to the village which they were going and he acted as if he were going further. That's Jesus. He pretended he was going to keep going just to see, to gauge where they were. And so he pretends he's going to keep going. Well, I'll see you guys. Nothing else left to talk about here. Verse 29, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. You almost, it's almost like Jesus is just like playing with them here because he has just explained to them the whole gospel from the whole Old Testament. He goes into their house and he acts as the host of the table. That's, a, that's actually odd what happened there. If he would have gone into their house, one of them should have hosted the table. One of them should have said the blessing. One of them should have broken the bread. But that language should sound pretty familiar to you because it's the same kind of language as when Jesus did the Last Supper. And so imagine Jesus, right? He's explained to them the whole Bible and now he's taking bread and he's blessing it and he's breaking it and giving it to them much like he did at the last supper. And it said when he was at table with them, he took it and broke it, the bread, blessed it, broke it and gave it to them. And verse 31, at that point, finally, it says their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. So suddenly, bam, their eyes were opened. You see, that's another thing that happens in the gospel, that on one hand, you can know the whole Bible, but unless God opens your eyes to see it, you won't. And they now have seen it. And Jesus has this new body, this, these new superpowers, if you will, in his resurrected body. As soon as he is made known to them, he vanishes. And, and I love this next line because I, I, I imagine Luke interviewing these guys. And they said... We basically, Jesus like just vanished, but we sort of knew the whole time that was him. 
Like, they, they sort of want to save a little face here. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? We knew something was going on. We felt something different was happening. And so they, they've now had this revelation of Jesus. They've, they've learned about him from the Bible, and they've now seen him. And what do they do now? Well, now they've got to go back to Jerusalem, and they've got to tell everybody. And imagine these two guys who are not particularly quick-witted, I think. They're going back, and the whole time they're, they're going back, and they're going to give this excited report. And they're just talking to each other, and they're saying, can you believe that Jesus appeared to us? You know, the, the only thing that could, could, could crush our excitement is that, that if Jesus had appeared to someone more famous and someone that people care about more than us, and they're going back, and they're excited to, to get back and tell the 11. And look at verse 32. It says, and they rose that same hour. And they returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven. Now, the eleven would have been the, the disciples, um, except for Judas, who had hanged himself, and Thomas, who was out getting some chips, we find out later. And basically, so they found the eleven, and those who were gathered with them together. Imagine them knocking on the door, and they open the, the, someone from the eleven opens the door, and these guys burst in, and they want to tell their news of Jesus. And before they can say anything, someone says to them, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, <laughs> the most famous dude in the whole New Testament. The only thing that could have made their news less exciting was that if Jesus had actually appeared to Peter, Simon Peter. And that's exactly what happened. So you can imagine these guys coming in. They're all excited. Jesus has appeared to Simon. What did you guys want to talk about? <laughs> in the next verse, it's just pretty much, yeah. Then they told what happened on the road. <laughs> And how we've made known to them the breaking of bread. It's, per, it's, it's like, wah, wah. Is it still good news? Absolutely. Is it still exciting news? Absolutely. But I just think it's funny that they were sort of undercut by the fact that Jesus had revealed himself to Simon. Now, why does Luke even tell us these stories? Basically, Luke has given us these accounts because he wants us to know, among other things, that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. You know, I watch the, uh, I, I tend to not be involved in like this sort of, sort of Christian music and Christian movies and that. I actually watched The Case for Christ on Netflix the other day because I'm in quarantine after all. And it wasn't bad. There's a lot of evidence that's given there for the resurrection of Jesus. And Luke just adds to this evidence. I wanted to sort of close right now by telling you why it's important. I mean, there's a lot of reasons the resurrection's important. I just want to give you at least one reason why the resurrection is important. And let me ask you this question. Have you ever seen the movie E.T., The Extraterrestrial? As part of my work on your behalf, I watched it again yesterday. I don't know how many times I've seen it. I can remember when, when we showed it to our girls for the first time. They were very small. The youngest and the oldest were sort of not that impressed with it. And I remember our middle daughter, Flannery, she was crying the whole time, and she was laughing. She was happy. Why? If you remember E.T., the extraterrestrial, it's basically about this extraterrestrial who lands in somewhere in Northern California. And he's, he's sort of taken in and hidden by this boy, Elliot. And over the course of time, Elliot and E.T. become so bound together, whatever happens to E.T. happens to Elliot. And whatever happens to Elliot happens to E.T. And there are some incredibly funny scenes, right? There's a scene when, when Elliot is dissecting frogs. 
and E.T. is watching TV and there's a show about freedom and Elliot decides he has to free all the frogs and he does. And then E.T. is watching this, this uh, changes the channel. He watches a movie, an old movie where this, this very impressive man grabs a woman and he kisses her and Elliot finds the prettiest girl in the class and he stands on the back of a bully and he kisses her. And then E.T. drinks a six pack of beer and gets drunk and guess what? Elliot falls out of his chair drunk. Mom has to come pick him up from school. Now those are all funny. What isn't funny is when E.T. gets sick. When E.T. gets sick, Elliot gets sick. And when E.T. dies, Elliot dies. And yet when E.T. rises from the dead, guess who else rises from the dead in, in, with him? Elliot. You see, whatever happens to E.T., happens to Elliot. And what, why is that relevant here is because the gospel works in the exact same way. In fact, it, not only does, does E.T. get sick and die and raise from the dead, not only does Elliot get sick and die and raise from the dead with him, E.T. ascends to heaven just like Jesus. And before he leaves, he touches Elliot in the forehead and says, I'll be right here. In other words, I will be with you. It's almost as if Steven Spielberg had been reading the New Testament. You see, the, the hope of the gospel that we have and the hope of resurrection is just this, that when Jesus died, we died. And when Jesus rose from the dead, we did rise and will rise with him. And the, in, in other words, for those who have lost loved ones, which in our church, a, a few people have recently, our hope is that because Jesus rose from the dead, our loved ones will rise from the dead. And for those of us who struggle, our hope is this, is that because Jesus rose from the dead, ultimately we also will rise from the dead. We have that hope, the hope of glory. Think about that. Let me pray right now. Father, I just pray now that you would continue to open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray um, that there, if there's anyone watching this and they don't have any hope or they don't have a hope of what comes next, that you would open their eyes to see Jesus in all of his glory, his suffering, and also in his resurrection. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. And amen. Typically, at this point in the service at church, we would uh, sing the doxology and we would take an offering. And I did want to just say to, to those members of New Hope that are watching who have continued to support our ministry during this uh, time of virus, uh, I'd, I'd encourage you to keep doing that, but also thank you. You have done uh, quite an amazing job so far. And so, I believe Samuel can tell you he's chatting, you know, somewhere how to, if you wanted to give online, all that stuff should be available to you. I thought I would close with another profession of faith from the Heidelberg Catechism. And this profession of faith is pretty simple. And the question is, and it asks this question, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? Answer, first by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make a share in the righteousness he won for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already now resurrected to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our glorious resurrection. Let me close out here with a blessing, simply saying the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen and amen.